24. Exodus chapter 24. One year ago to the day, we started in the book of Exodus, September 3rd, 2017. So we are 12 months into it and halfway through. Uh, second half of the book does pick up a little bit. There's a lot of descriptions. But this is interesting that after one year we come to one of the most pivotal, maybe the pivotal moment in the book of Exodus. So if you haven't been with us, if you're new today, start out with Israel, the children of the man Israel in Egypt, enslaved for hundreds of years. God sees them, remembers his promise to Abraham to protect them and to make them a great nation, sends Moses to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is. I don't know who the Lord you're talking about is. So God says, let me show you. Gave him 10 plagues, culminated with the death of the firstborn son. They let Egypt, they let Israel go. Then they followed him, and God says, we're going to finish this. And so he drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea as a final deliverance for his people. Now they're in the wilderness, and God brings them to Mount Sinai. And, and on Mount Sinai, God comes down, and he meets with his people from the mountaintop, and he says, I'm going to make you a nation that represents me. Here's what that looks like. And he gives them the Ten Commandments and then explains them in the next three chapters what it means to live as a nation for God. We started that section in about May and we finished it. This passage today, the law has been read to the people, to given to Moses of how they should live. Now it's brought to the people. Now we have the moment where God says, here's who I want you to be. Now what? So read with me in the text. We're going to read verse uh, chapter 24, verses 1 down to verse 11. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words, to the, wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. And that's from the Ten Commandments up to what we talked about last week. And read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then... Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. God says, here's what I want you to do. Here are the laws that you have to live by. Gave him to Moses, and he says to Moses, now take him to the people. Now is the moment of decision. You see, Israel had said before that they wanted to follow God. 
but they didn't know what it meant to follow God. Now they do. And so God brings it before them. The terms of the covenant have been given. But what this passage shows us is that there is a great gap between God's people and God. And it will only be closed by sacrifice on both sides. But God has been seeking the same thing the whole time. Personal fellowship with his people. We see three things in this passage. The separation, sacrifice, and the shared meal. I'm going to give you a second to appreciate the alliteration. Because that never, if you know, that never happens. Um, it's tough to make them all sound. But the separation, the sacrifice, and the shared meal. So look in the passage. It says in verse 1, Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those were the priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel, the representatives, but worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come up near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. You see, to understand anything, you have to understand that there's a gap between God's people and God. A separation. God says, I want to be with you, but don't come up here. Give them my law, but don't get near me. God's own people are not allowed near him. Now let's remember, just because we enjoy some benefits of Christianity, let's remember how things are. See, this is a principle that goes from the whole Bible. This is a principle of life, the principle of separation. It's given an example. Here's what separation looks like in this context. But the key concept is there are two opposing natures here. There are two opposing natures. There's man's nature, the way man is, and there's God's nature, the way God is, the way God always is, and the way man always is. You see, it sounds a little strange that God says, you're my people, but I don't want you to come near me. We're like, well, why not? But if you remember, how has Israel behaved through this book? I know it's been a year, but go back to the beginning. Moses comes to them and says, I'm going to let you go. And then Pharaoh starts to oppress them, and they say to Moses, you're the problem. We don't want you. They rejected God from the beginning. Then they went out to the wilderness. They went to the Red Sea, and they said, why have you brought us out here to kill us? They rejected God. Then they were in the wilderness again, and they started to murmur. And Moses says, they're going to kill me, God. Now we get to here. You see who these people are? They're serial God rejectors. Why? Because that's their nature. Their nature hasn't changed from the beginning. So of course they can't come close to God. How many times have they rejected God? Now that's just gone? Now they're different people because God has reached out to them? So their nature keeps them away from God because they've rejected God from the beginning. But God's nature also keeps them away. God is love. Yes. You know what God loves? Goodness. God is good and God loves goodness. But we've seen the people are not good. They rejected God. And 40 days from now, they're going to worship a false god. God knows this. And he says, I love that which is good. I hate evil. See, that's a standard that we want. Someone that loves good and hates evil. Okay, well, here's what that looks like in practice. You see, these people are evil. They may have not felt evil, but their behavior betrays them. So God says, because I love what's good, and because you love what's evil, you can't come up here. You can't be with me because of our opposing natures. You ever had those little magnets? 
and if you put them one way, they stick together. But if you turn them the other way, you can't get them. You kind of have to like try to move away from each other. That's what's happening here. By the very nature of the magnets, you can't push them together. And so by the very nature of man and the nature of God, he says, worship from afar. You come close to me, your presence can't stand my presence. That principle hasn't changed. People were not different back then. They just lived in a different place. They ate different food, but their hearts were the same. Our hearts are the same. That loneliness, that gnawing feeling inside of us a lot of times, that constant conflict in our lives, it comes from within us. It comes from within other people who are with. And together we sort of create this society that's just filled with strife. We have just as much strife today as we did, as they did back then. 3,500 years, and what are we still doing? Fighting among tribes. Man hasn't changed, and God hasn't changed. So now what? See, the chapter doesn't end there. It ends in the opposite direction. If there's a nature that opposes each other, something needs to change. So we have the principle of sacrifice. Separation, then sacrifice. God wanted his people to be with him. And God's people wanted to be with him. Notice what it says here. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has said we will do. Unanimously, they said, we want to be with God. And God says, I want to be with you. But that's not enough. It's not enough to want to be with God. And it's not even enough for God to want to be with us. You see, there's a fundamental problem here that can't be changed by what you want. The nature has to be changed. The, the very fabric of reality must be changed because desires don't get you anything. Have you noticed that in your life? You can want it all you, with all your power. doesn't happen, does it? You can speak the truth, but it doesn't happen, does it? Your will does not accomplish anything. So God says, I know how to fix this. He puts the terms in place, but something must be changed. Something must be given up. Something must be altered. See, everybody had what they wanted. Israel said they wanted to be with God. Did they really, though? They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And if they could have God with that, that would be great. And so God says something needs to change. So... There's a ceremony, and it's strange to us because we don't do these sorts of things, but the principle is something must die to fix the problem. A blood sacrifice. So it says that Moses wrote all the words down. He rose up, built an altar. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Why? Because the people needed something to make God forget about all the bad stuff they had done. Something had to change. Something in this world had to be given up to cover the past mistakes. So there was a blood sacrifice. Why is it a blood sacrifice? Because of how bad the sin was. Someone needed to die. Someone's throat had to be cut here. And Israel said, we don't want our throat to be cut. And God says, okay, but somebody has to die. Blood has to be shed. Because you can't just pretend like the past didn't happen. You can't pretend like people weren't hurt. 
that rejection wasn't there. You can't pretend like it didn't happen. So we're not. We're going to make somebody pay for it. And so the blood was shed. The past was covered. And then an oath was taken. You see, he, he made the sacrifice, and then Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Why? Why did he sprinkle it on the altar? Whose altar was that? That was God's altar. The blood was saying, here's God's part. He's in. The blood represented what God would sacrifice, what God would give up. God says, on my end, I'll make an oath to you that will change the future. I'll give up my future without you. I'll give up some of my freedom. See, God bound himself to the people. You know what it means when you bind yourself to something? It's a sacrifice, isn't it? And so God says, I'll sacrifice. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, we'll sacrifice our future. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. There's an oath made here, a covenant. Giving up all else in the world to covenant between these two people. God says, I want to cover your past, but I want a commitment for the future. God makes a commitment, and they make a commitment. What's the commitment? On Israel's side, they said, we'll be obedient. And on God says, God's side, he says, I'll take care of you. That's the oath. That's the binding. Israel said, we swear by this blood to obey you. Now, why blood? See, there's two parts of this blood ceremony. There's the part that says cover the past, but there's also a warning here. See, in the ancient world, when you made a covenant, you killed an animal, and then you walked between the pieces, or you sprinkled the blood. And it was a way of saying, if I break this covenant, do to me what you did to the animal. Cut me in half like you killed the animal. We say the same thing. Have you ever been a kid and someone says, are you going to do this? You say, I promise. And they said, I don't know if I believe it. You said, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. What do you say? You're saying, if I don't keep it, I'll die. Kill me. Now, we don't really mean it, but back then, they meant it. The blood was put in the basins and sprinkled on the people. And the symbolism was, you made an oath. If you break it, this will be your blood. It's a very serious covenant. But it wasn't enough, was it? Because these are just animals dying. What about the people? See, an animal life and a person's life are not equal. So when the people disobey, the animal can't fix it. So what does God do? In the New Testament, God says this wasn't enough. That blood wasn't enough. We need better blood. We need a better sacrifice. We need a new sacrifice that can cover actual sin. That's what Christ did. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the God-man shed his blood. You see the qualitative difference? God himself shed his blood because a bull couldn't cut it. Hebrews 9, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that's what has happened here, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then he gives commentary in this very passage. For where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. You see, a covenant didn't matter until somebody put blood on the line. 
For a covenant is in force after there is a death, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even in the first covenant from our passage was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Nothing is taken care of without blood being shed. And if this could set up a covenant between them, how much more God on earth shedding his own blood? You see, this is a little gruesome, isn't it? Can you imagine being there, blood in buckets? Have you ever seen buckets full of blood? It's a lot of blood. That's smell. You can smell it. Then he takes branches and sprinkles it on people. Have you ever had blood sprayed on you? You don't forget that. What does it say? Just like that blood was there, so the blood of Christ was real, was shed. You were there, you could smell Christ's blood pouring out of him. If you were close enough, Christ's own blood would spray on you. You don't forget that. We can't see it, so what do we have to do? We have to believe it. See, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. Faith that if the blood of bulls and goats could set up a covenant between Israel and God, then the blood of Jesus can set up a better covenant. Don't go back to the Old Testament for this. The New Testament shows us what couldn't be done here. It's a better blood, so it's a better healing. Remember the separation in the beginning? How do you heal it? The blood had to heal it. And the better the blood, the better the healing. So the perfect blood of Christ offers us perfect healing. Amen. And there's a new covenant. You see, it wasn't just past sins forgiven, but it was a binding together. Christ made a new covenant with us. But this covenant is so much better than the old covenant. See, the old covenant was the people saying, kill us if we don't obey. And God says, I'll take care of you. But the new covenant says, Christ will obey and Christ will care for you. Our part, just believe it. Amen. See how much better it is? See how the balances are not quite the same? In this passage, it was equal. They both had a part to play. Israel obeyed, God rewarded them. But in the new covenant, we don't obey. We believe. Christ obeys, and God blesses Christ and us. It's a better covenant. The Old Testament was not given to shape our lives. It was given us to point towards something that it couldn't do. And so now God has bound himself to us at the cost of blood. If God were to break his covenant, he would have to die. But Christ already died. That's final. There's nothing left to give. And so the covenant can never be broken. Because God doesn't care how you keep the covenant. He only cares that Christ kept the covenant. But the story doesn't even end there. You see, the sacrifice covered the separation and bound them together. But is that all there is, is just sort of this guilt-free life? No, look at the rest of the passage. There's a shared meal. You see, in the beginning, God said, don't let them come up to the mountain. Then the ceremony takes place. And now he says, then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the Israel, elders of Israel. See, that things have changed. Now they can go up. And they saw God, the God of Israel. In the, old, in the ancient world, you would have a ceremony where you would write the covenant down, 
you would have a sacrifice, and then to finalize the ceremony, you would have a meal together. You see, meals, especially in this culture, were only had with friends and families. Enemies didn't sit down at your meals. So a covenant meal at the end of a covenant was saying, we're all friends now. That's what's happening here. God is now meeting with his people. The leaders conclude with a covenant meal where they enjoy God's beauty and the elder, they saw the God of Israel. Remember how they'd seen God before? It was thunder and lightning and earthquakes and they were terrified. But now what do they see? They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. All those words like and as mean it was too beautiful to describe. Now they see a vision of God that they can enjoy, that's beautiful, not fearful. What a change from those who said, if you come on the mountain, if you touch the mountain, God will kill you. To now they're seeing the very throne of God, basking in its beauty, enjoying God's nature as friends, and they eat a meal of friendship. But the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay, on his, lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. You ever notice when you eat and drink, it's hard to stay mad? You ever been mad at someone you try to eat and you just can't do it? Sometimes you with kids, they're really upset, and you're like, here, drink this. And they just kind of, you can't eat and drink and be mad. That's a symbol of the power of a shared meal. And God is saying to these leaders, you're my friends now. I know you did a lot of bad stuff in the past, and you're going to do a lot of bad stuff in the future. But let's sit down and have a meal together. God's goal has always been this. From the beginning, that he would share a meal with his people. That has always been God's plan. Food seems very worldly, doesn't it? But food is God's designated means of grace for you to enjoy him. Why is food so powerful to us? Why do we have eating disorders? Why do we have weight problems? Why do we have indulgences? Because God made food powerful. And when we use food to accomplish something it was not meant to accomplish, the power of the food takes over. What was food meant to accomplish? Remember the story of Adam and Eve? What does that center around? Food. God says, I've given you all this food. Just don't eat that one. See, food was so powerful that Eve looked at the food and says, that's so good, I'm going to disobey God for it. But God wanted them to eat. He wanted to enjoy the food. Manna from heaven. What's God doing? Making dinner. See, God has always been making dinner for his people. Since the beginning, he gave them the garden. He gave them manna. He's providing food for them. Isaiah 25 says, on this mountain, it's a prophecy of the future, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Who makes it? God makes it. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. You see, in this story, only the leaders got to go to the top. That's not the way it is anymore. The veil has been removed. The smoke has been taken away. All the people enjoy it. Not the pastors or the mature Christians. All of us. God preparing a meal. And he will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Are you happy as a Christian? If you are not happy as a Christian, you don't get the Bible. The point of Christianity is for you to be happy fellowshipping with God. And if Christianity makes you unhappy, you got it wrong. You miss God's point. The point is here, to be glad and rejoice in this meal shared with God. Discouraged Christians, unhappy Christians are missing something. It's not a goal of Christianity to be so taken with sin that you're always frowning. To be always judging other people. To always pointing out the wrong. That's not the point. The point is to be happy, enjoying God's fellowship and enjoying it with each other. See, it didn't end there in the Old Testament. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? What is the very first miracle that Jesus ever did? He made water into wine, enough for everybody. God provided. He said, let's have a good party. I'll provide. Then he says, he goes out in the desert and people are hungry. And what does God do? He says, I'll provide dinner for 5,000. He does it again for 4,000. Jesus bringing the meal. Why? Because Jesus wants to eat dinner with you. Not in a metaphorical sense, in a literal sense. See, the miracles actually happen to show you that what God wants is real. Revelation 19 says, it's a vision of what's going to be like in the perfect world. And I heard, and it was, as it were, the voice of great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, in this joyous celebration, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see where this is headed? You sitting at a table, everybody's happy, enjoying some good food that God made for you. Do we believe the Bible is literally true? Then that's literally what God wants. And that's why in the Old Testament he says they saw God and they ate and drank. Fulfilling the final goal of the covenant. We sing the song, Come and Dine. Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites his chosen people, come and dine. With his manna he doth feed and supplies her every need. Oh, tis sweet to sup with Jesus all the time. Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. Soon the Lamb will take his bride to be ever at his side. All the hosts of heaven will be assembled be. Oh, it will be a glorious sight, all the saints in spotless white. And with Jesus they will feast eternally. You know why you love to go out with friends and eat? Because Jesus loves to go out with friends and eat. You see, when you get to make dinner for someone, you are honoring God's image. When you enjoy fellowship around food, you're honoring God's image. You're living out the life that Jesus wants for himself. See, the new covenant is a promise of God's presence now and forever. What's the key to this whole passage? The key to this whole passage is not the food. It's not the people. 
It's the presence of God. The real presence of God. Not words about God. See, they read the Book of the Covenant, but that wasn't enough. They knew God, they heard God, but they needed to be with God. If you're not with God, you don't have anything. But if you're with God, you have everything. Martin Luther King experienced this. Many people think Martin Luther King was a liberal and didn't believe in Jesus. And I do believe that was true for a time. You see, when he, he grew up in a pastor's home, his dad was a very conservative pastor. But then he went off to seminary. And he was rejected from conservative seminaries, so he went to liberal seminaries. And he was misled there. And he was told that Jesus wasn't real. It was an idea. It was a principle. And he left the school believing that. And at age 26, he started the civil rights movement, the, the Montgomery bus boycott. And if you know anything about this, it was a very dark time for them. People did not want to change. And when Martin Luther King in January, I think it was 1954, they had a protest. And he said the people of Montgomery realized that we were serious. And they started calling his house. 30 and 40 times a day, telling him they were going to kill him. And he said he stood strong, and he, he sort of the leader he was supposed to be. But one night, they get, he got a call at midnight. His wife and his baby daughter were sleeping, and the guy on the phone said, if you don't leave Montgomery in three days, we're going to blow your house up. And that night, he couldn't take it anymore. He was alone. His wife was asleep. His friends were gone. It was just him. So he went out to the kitchen. It's called the kitchen table experience. And he sat down over some coffee and tried to grap grapple and wrestle with this idea of suffering and danger and fear and despair alone. And he said, I pulled back on the theology and the philosophy that I had just studied in the liberal universities trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and the reality of sin and evil. But the answer did not come from there. You see, he'd learned the principles of kindness and goodness and love and brotherhood, but it wasn't enough. He said, the liberal philosophy I'd learned was not enough to handle this. Then he thought about his family, his mother and father, who had raised him to be good Christians, he said, something said to me, you can't call on your dad now. You can't even call on your mom now. And then he remembered what he'd heard growing up when his dad preached from the scripture. And he said, you've got to call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. Amen. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. And I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. He was alone and he couldn't cut it anymore. And everything he'd been taught by the smart people couldn't cut it. And his parents couldn't cut it. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you. 
even unto the end of the world. I'll tell you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. You see, when a push comes to shove, if, you're, if there's not a person with you, you're done. If it's not Jesus, the risen, real Savior, with you in that moment, you've got nothing. And Martin Luther King realized that he had nothing except for Jesus. And if Jesus wasn't real, it would have broken him. But Jesus was real. Three days later, while his wife and his baby daughter were in the house, they bombed it. He says, strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing, bombing calmly. Three days before, he couldn't stand the thought of a phone call. Now his house has been bombed. He said, my religious, religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. What changed? The world didn't change. He didn't change. He realized that God was with him. He said, if I'm in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus has promised never to leave me, I can take anything. That's the presence that's real. And if you don't know that God's with you, nothing else is enough. If you haven't experienced the real presence of God, nothing is enough. When you come to church, you may not feel like God is here. When you look at Christians, you don't see Jesus. When you examine your life, it doesn't feel like God is there. So how do you go forward? You say, do I believe the promise or not? Do I believe that Jesus will keep his promise? Did Jesus die on the cross? Did he promise to stay with us? Has that changed because life got hard? We live by faith, not by sight. When you're alone with suffering, which you will be alone with suffering, Jesus will be there with you. But if you don't know Jesus, you're just alone. You're just alone. You see, at this moment, you have a choice. Not to work, not to try, but to believe. To put your trust somewhere. You put it in yourself, you'll die. You put it in Christ, you'll live. You see, that's hard to remember, though, isn't it? That's why we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the covenant meal where we all gather together and we remind ourselves with real elements that God is with us. Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the body that was broken for you. If you believe this, everything else can be okay. But it's not just that. He says, do this until I return. You see, God's making dinner for you. You don't go to heaven and have to cook dinner. The marriage supper of the lamb doesn't show up with the meal and you have to go and prepare it in the kitchen. God's making it for you. He's in the kitchen making dinner for you. Do you believe that? This will help you remind, remember. When you take this, you look around at all of us who are taking and you say, one day God will be giving me this. One day Jesus will be serving me. You lift your eyes out of this world where everything is wrong and you look at heaven where everything is right. That's what gets you through. That's all that Jesus promises you, but look how much he promises you. 
Let's pray.